When you are facing a big problem in your life, where do you turn for help? And if you have a non-working thermostat, like I did a few weeks ago in my house, do you go to YouTube to find videos for help to solve the problem? If you're dealing with a relationship issue, who do you talk with? Maybe it's a close friend or a family member who you believe can give wisdom into that situation. What if the problem is about resources and you need more money to fix an issue? Do you have enough resources? What happens when your problem is bigger than the resources that you have? Where do you turn? When you face a serious problem, who or what you turn to reveals who you are trusting. When issues arise in your life, where you go or who you talk to reveals who, who you view as, as important to deal with those issues in life. And we come back to the book of Colossians this morning, and this is the third message of Advent, and we look closely again at Jesus. That's what our focus has been this month, Jesus. And in the book of Colossians, a dangerous false teaching that was uh, taking believers away from dedication to Christ and even these false teachers were showing a different Christ, one made in their own image. And we're going to look at Colossians 1, 15 through 20. And Paul wants them to know Christ. He wants them to know Jesus. And he labors to teach them who this true Christ is. And as you move into chapter 2, verse 4, he warns them not to be deluded. And then 2, verse 8, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elementary spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And then in Colossians 2, he continues in verse 16 through 18. He says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. He says in verse 17, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. He says in verse 18, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions and puffed up without reasons by his sensuous mind. And, and all this Paul is, is directing their, the, 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 the issue that is facing this church in Colossae about angels. So we're not actually sure the exact issue, but there was some blending of Jewish practices that were happening in the church. Blending of the Jewish mindset and the Greco-Roman practices and angels is a reference. Well, what does it look like? Well, we're not sure exactly. We weren't there. Uh, they probably weren't singing or worshiping angels in the church, but, in, but some were most likely calling on angels when they needed help, even praying to angels to, to bring rescue. And they were dismissing Christ. They were lowering Christ as their help. They, they didn't understand fully who Christ was. There was writing even from during this time that people would use the names of certain angels as magical charms to help them, to ward off evil spirits, to give them help and hope for their daily lives. Or, or they would recite this to, to get blessing. They would call on certain angels to help them have someone else fall in love with them. Like Cupid. They wanted additional things to help. They wanted something on top of Jesus Christ. And they were acting as if Christ was not sufficient. And so, where do we turn in times of need? Because where we turn reveals who we trust. Is Jesus just another good luck charm with the rest? 
Is he just another angel, another resource, or is he more? These are questions I hope to answer. As we look at Colossians 1, 15 through 20, we've been taking our time away from the study of 1 Samuel, and we wanna look directly at Christ. And as we approach Christmas just a week away, one of the most important holidays, I believe, for the Christian, it's important to remind ourselves again of the one we worship. So if you haven't already, turn to Colossians 1. Follow with me as I read 15 through 20. Colossians chapter 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And Paul wants us to know that Jesus is all we need. He is the supreme and sufficient Savior. Paul wants the Colossians to know this and to live in light of this. And, and I want us to see this and understand this and live in light of this. Any problem that you have in this world can only be solved by Christ. But who is Jesus? What do you perceive him to be and what you think he should do? These are important questions. So hopefully this morning we can answer those questions. Why he is all we need. There's five points here as we go through these verses that I want to cover Christ is the supreme image. Christ is, is of supreme importance. Christ is the supreme creator. Christ is the supreme head. And Christ is the supreme one. Do you, do you see a pattern there at all? The supremacy. Jesus is God. And this morning we'll look at five ways that Jesus is God. So I want to walk through these five areas, five things we see in the text. And then when I finish all five, I want to apply that to us this morning. So the first one, Jesus is the supreme image. Paul writes there at the beginning of verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. The heretics during the time when this letter was written believed that Jesus was just another a spirit, uh, like the angels, and inferior to God. And Paul writes that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the real God. Jesus was not a, a hologram from heaven. He was God in the flesh, not a ghost, but, but real uh, image is econ, which, we, which means likeness in the Greek. It's where we get our English word for icon, referring to a statue. If you want to see what God is like, look at Jesus. In Hebrews, a book which talks a whole lot about Jesus, we've even read and reminded this morning, Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He says Jesus is the exact imprint. He is the exact representation of who God is and what God does. All that God is, Jesus is. If Jesus wasn't fully God, then he wouldn't be the exact representation of God. This is why Jesus would say to us in the Gospels, as we looked at John last year, John 14, 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? When they saw Jesus, they saw God, the invisible God. 
The invisible God becomes seen in Jesus Christ. And this is huge for your theology. You need to understand that Jesus is God. To not believe this is to be deluded by Satan into a false gospel, a false understanding of who God is. Second, Jesus is of supreme importance. It says here, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. And we looked briefly at this verse last week, but we didn't deal with this term here, firstborn. What, what exactly is Paul trying to communicate to us this morning? Firstborn does not mean first created, no matter what JW say to you at your front door. Have you ever, raise your hand if you've ever had a Jehovah's Witness at your front door. So most everyone. If you haven't, they'll, they'll come. And I want you to listen, because in this, this passage gives you the truth that we need to share, we need to preach. Matt Slick writes about this. He says, the Jehovah's Witnesses interpret the word firstborn here to mean first created because it's consistent with their theological presupposition that Jesus is a created thing. Of course, Jesus, the word became flesh in John 1.1, 1, 1, is not a created thing. But that hasn't stopped the Watchtower organization from claiming that he is. Nevertheless, there is a Greek word for first created, and it, it was in use at the time of Paul's writing to, to the Colossians. But he did not use that term here. Greek for firstborn was proto with tikto, which means firstborn. And that is what's used here in this Colossians passage in 1.15. But the Greek word for first created would be proto kisto. And it's not used here. Furthermore, if Paul was in agreement that Christ was first created, he wouldn't have written this, written this letter to the Colossian church. He's, he's writing uh, not in agreement with the heretics. He's writing against it. They're false claims about who Christ is. He's exposing the errors in this false teaching. And Paul is talking about position here, not, not, not created if you're reading this, when, when Paul wrote it, you would know immediately what he's talking about. In most parts of the world at that time, the law meant the firstborn received all the wealth of the father. The firstborn got all the wealth, all the status, all of the standing, all of the power. Therefore, the firstborn in relation to this is equal to the father. And Paul is saying this one, Jesus Christ, is absolutely equal in power and dignity, dignity with God the father. He is supreme above all. Even in, in scripture, we see it didn't always go to the firstborn male. For example, Isaac was called Abraham's firstborn, even though technically Ishmael was his firstborn. But Isaac was the one who got the position, got all the pro promises. Jacob and Esau was the same. Through that, friends, you see sovereign election throughout the pages of scripture, God choosing whom he wills. Christ is the firstborn. To distinguish him from the rest of creation, Christ is preeminent above all. The third thing we see here is Christ is the supreme creator. It says in verse 16, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Jesus is the image of God, the exact imprint of God. He is the supreme importance, the firstborn, the preeminent one, and Jesus is the supreme creator. The heretics believe that Jesus is just another one of the spirits that you can seek for help, and this would have rocked their thinking. Jesus wasn't created. He was the creator. All of creation was made by him. And did you catch? It's made by him and 
for him. They say that when an artist finishes their work, that the piece of them is in their work. And you can get to know that artist in, in some small way by, by looking at their work. This is how creation works, my friends. The heavens declare the glory of God. And we can get to know God in a small way by, by observing his creation. There's also a danger there. C.S. Lewis says the created things in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust in them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself, they are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have not yet visited. What a picture he, he paints for us. It's only a glimpse, a faint glimpse of the future that awaits us, of who we can see and who we one day will see. But there's even more in that verse, and it moves to something that's intriguing, I, I find. He, he created everything on earth for us to enjoy, everything visible, but it says that he created everything in heaven and invisible. He's talking about the angelic powers here. And usually when this is discussed, there are two types of errors that happen when we come to spiritual forces. They're usually, not always, but usually two extremes. People that make too much out of those forces and those that don't make anything out of those forces. And it's suddenly hard to, to be in the middle in that. I want to think that I'm in the middle, but I know myself and I tend to be on one side and, and want to grow in that. But the, the hyper-spiritual forces type person, if anything grows well for them, it's because they might say an angel took care of them. And, and, and in so doing, they put a blessing on that angel. And then that same type of person, and when they run into any difficulty during the day uh, to accomplish what they want, like coming to church or coming to a Bible study, they, they get a flat tire and they say, a demon didn't want me to come. No, maybe it wasn't demonic. Maybe it was because you need to clean your driveway. Now again, we can float to either extreme and say there's no spiritual forces at work, but there are. The scripture says there are. And we don't know where and when. Either way, our focus shouldn't be so much on the spiritual forces. Our focus should be on? I'll let you answer this one. Who? Christ. All of these were created by Christ, it says. But the issue that Paul is dealing with is that during the time in the church in Colossae, there were false teachers that were, were blending. Syncretistic. Do, do you know what that means, syncretism? It's the idea of taking from different religions, different spiritual ideas, and, and adding them to yours, and then, in so doing, creating a new thing. That's what's happening in Colossae. Rome is building roads, so the access to other cities is happening now, and so be, with that access comes different viewpoints, different practices, different cultures, different religions. People then begin to, to blend things. And you get this guy over here, this Jesus guy, and he says, I love Jesus. I'm following Jesus, but I have this Greek neighbor, and soon he's learning what this Greek neighbor is doing and thinking, I'm going to add some of that to what I got over here. It's helpful, I think, so I'll put it in. 
And I got a Jewish friend over here, but he's differently unique and seemingly original and maybe even a little mystic. So I'm gonna add that in here in this too. And soon what happens is it's Jesus plus this, plus this. And a syncretistic blend. Although they don't think it's new and different, they think it's expanded, enlightened, maybe just better. How does this work out for us today here in Washington? Well, you very, very rarely see a Muslim Christian, but you see a lot of New Age stuff really meshing in with Christianity. You have good people who go to church each week. They probably don't know their Bible well enough. They probably don't know the gospel well enough, and so they think that there is more yet. And they slip into a thinking that this new thought is, is better, it's helpful to them. And so they pick up books like Jesus Calling because they think that there should be more. And, and, and friends, there should be warning lights that should be shining. You, you know warning lights, right? Any, anyone own a car here? There's a dashboard, you know? Lights come on, we should respond. How many of you actually respond? <laughs> Check engine light, right? That's just there for decoration for some. No, warning lights, you know, they're there. Warning, 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 something's not right. And you should look into this more. But seldom does that happen. James Montgomery Boyce once said that the real battle in our times would not be the inerrancy and the fallibility of Scripture, but the Bible's sufficiency. Friends, that is is under attack today. And with the growth of social media and Facebook constantly under attack, the Bible's not sufficient. We need more. It goes against what Scripture says. Are we going to rely on what the Scripture says or are we going to continue to long for other revelation? And you can see how quietly and unsuspecting these things can seep into the church, into the lives of believers. And soon we've meshed things up, we've blended it, made this new way of practice, a new religion of sorts. You know, maybe you have a friend that does yoga. You know, not just the moves of yoga, whatever that is, but the meditation. And you have this whole new world of meditation, this, this new thing. And, and, they, and they say, well, the Bible says a lot about meditating. So what's the big deal? And you're right, the Bible is filled with encouragements for us to meditate. But just know that Eastern meditation is about emptying your mind. Gospel meditation is about filling your mind. Eastern meditation says that if you empty your mind, you'll be free. But the Bible says that if you fill your mind with the gospel, with the truth, you will truly be free. And see the difference, my friends, in how easily and and quietly it just seeps in? This is what was happening in Colossae. And Paul is saying to us here that those invisible things, those dominions or rulers are, are, should be pointing us to Christ, not taking us away. So why would you take those things and make them more important than what they were created for? Jesus is the supreme creator. All was created by him and for him. Fourth, he says that he is, the scripture says that he is the supreme head. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Then in everything, he might be preeminent. And there are many metaphors in the Bible to describe the church. It's called a kingdom, a a vineyard, a flock, a building, a bride, and my favorite, a family. But the most profound is that of a body. The church is a body, and the head of that body is Christ. It's not that 
Christ is the CEO of the church, bringing organization and structure, although that happens. No, Christ is the head, meaning that the church is a living organism and cannot be separated from the head. We cannot be separated from Christ. We need him. He gives life and direction to the body, to the church. And as Christians, we're all part of the church, universal and local. We're part of the body. Though we're not the body in ourselves, in all in ourselves individually. We're part of the body, not the head, that's Christ. So that means as, as you are part of this body, we look to serve one another with love and grace. We choose words that are encouraging and right for each other and right for the moment. We show love to one another. Thinking of others is more important than ourselves. And remind ourselves that this isn't my church. It's Christ's church. We serve at the pleasure of the king. It's not Pastor Jeff's church. It's not the elder's church. It's not just your church. It's our church. It's Christ's church. He died for this church. He is head of this church. He is supreme. And we serve this church body in light of the head. In light of Christ, he, as the head of the body, gives life to this body. And so the closer that we are to him, the more of his life flows to us and through us. And he says this at the end of verse 18, so that in everything he might be preeminent. Well, fifth and last, he is the supreme one. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell he is the supreme one, the fullness of God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are one. The fullness is in Christ, not divided like the Gnostics believed and was spreading around the city of Colossae. No, the fullness of God pleased to dwell in Christ. He is fully God. Jesus isn't a guru. He isn't a teacher. He isn't a genie to grant you three wishes. If any of that was true, then he would have limits you would have some sort of right over him, but he's not. He's God. J.B. Lightfoot wrote about Paul's use of this word fullness. He says, on the one hand, in relation to deity, he is the visible image of the invisible God. He is not only the chief manifestation of the divine nature, he exhausts the Godhead manifested. In him resides the totality of the divine powers and attributes. For this totality, Gnostic teachers had a technical term, the plenorma or plenitude. And in contrast to their doctrine, Paul asserts and repeats the assertion that the plenora, the, the fullness, abides absolutely and wholly in Jesus Christ as the word of God. And the entire light is concentrated in him. And Paul tells the Colossians that they don't need angels to help them get saved. They don't need magic charms, incantations. They need they don't need something that was created. They need Christ and Christ alone. And John Owen writes about our response to this. He says, the revelation made of Christ and the blessed gospel is far more excellent, more glorious, more filled with the rays of divine wisdom and goodness than the whole creation. And the just comprehension of it, if attainable, can, can contain or afford and without this knowledge, the mind of man, however priding itself and other invention discoveries, is, is wrapped up in darkness and confusion. This, therefore, deserves the severest of our thoughts, the best of our meditations, and our utmost diligence in them. For if our future blessedness shall consist in living where he is and beholding his glory, 
What better preparation can there be for that than a constant previous contemplation of that glory as revealed in the gospel, that by a view of it, we may gradually be transformed into the same glory? Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, the supreme one, the fullness of God, pleased to dwell in him. Amen? So how do we process all of this? How do we process all that we've talked about what the scripture says in just these brief moments about Christ. I mean, it's a week before Christmas. You're thinking about food or the fact that you haven't done any Christmas shopping yet. I know that there's half of you probably that haven't, right? Or you're not done. Well, what does the book of Colossians have to do with Christmas anyways? I believe it's because knowing Christ is life-altering. And we're talking about the supremacy of Christ. If Jesus was just a man or just a guru or just a, a teacher, then you could walk away and not listen to him. That he would have no rights over you. But if he's God, then you cannot relate to Jesus Christ in that way at all. And what he says for your life and my life is non-negotiable. What he says, we do. Because he's God, we, we do that. You know, imagine with me, you have a friend who's dying of a very rare disease. And you bring this friend to this important, acclaimed doctor. And the doctor says, you're going to die in a week. I can cure you, but I want you to know something before I give you this remedy, that there's something that you must do. There must something that must happen. And to take this remedy, you must abstain from eating chocolate for the rest of your life. We laugh at that, thinking, is it really that easy? Well, let's say it is. And you're there with your friend, and you think, amazing. What an amazing thing. And you're excited, and you turn to your friend and you say, did you hear that? You can be cured. And all you have to do is, is give up chocolate. And your friend looks you straight in the eye and says, give up chocolate? That's crazy talk. I'm not doing that. What do you do at that point? I mean, he's nuts, right? The cure, the remedy is there. Friends, this happens time and time again. It's happened to me multiple times when I, when I walk through someone, the glorious gospel. And I get to the end, and, and they're curious. They're, they're intrigued by it. And they say something at the end, and it varies the question. Do I have to give up my binge drinking? Do I have to give up getting drunk? Or wait, I hear that Christians don't have sex before marriage. Do I really have to do that? And there's, listen, there's something wrong with that question. They don't understand the gospel yet, because if there's a God who is the source of all beauty and truth, if there's a God whom to know would result in all of his glory and wisdom and power coming into your life so that you could live with now joy and freedom and you can be blown away by his love and care for you each and every day and that God was Jesus Christ and you say, nah, I'd rather have chocolate. It's just foolishness. You can't know the supreme one if you make other things supreme in your life. That's the point of it all. 
Jesus won't compete with other things. And I've had people come to me and say, I'm a Christian. I, I am a Christian, but I'm doing this over here and I have to keep doing it. I'm not sure if it's okay. I don't really care if it's not. It's my opinion, and I don't know if the Bible even talks about it, but I'm gonna keep doing it. You see, that's the language of supremacy. That's what they're, they're communicating. That you're making whatever you're doing supreme. You're making what you're doing absolute. And only Jesus can be supreme. And if Jesus is God, friends, he cannot come into your life to, to round it out. He's not just a vitamin supplement. Jesus can't just be your buddy sitting on the sidelines cheering you on. He's not an add-on to life so that you can now have your best life now. It's not Jesus and. Well, friends, there's nothing else. It's Jesus. And you can't know the supreme one if there are other things that are supreme in your life. And this is what Christmas means. We need to say, Jesus, I give you supremacy in every area of my life. Anything your word says, any area you want, it's yours. I will not stand in the way of your supremacy for my life. There will be no place in my life that I will say no to you, Jesus. You have it all. My life is yours. This was what it means to be a Christian. Total abandonment to Jesus Christ. Let's take this a step further, friends. Let's explore Christmas a little more. What does Christmas mean to you? I mean, what comes into your mind when you think of Christmas? You know, here in the U.S., what, what comes to your mind? You know, I thought through this. There are things that, that have been coming to my mind over, over what Christmas is, meaning, meaning the experience of what Christmas is. I remember when we were in Sweden and on Christmas Day, we didn't have a fireplace in our apartment that we had, but we had a television. So I, I turned on the fireplace app to be on the TV. Why? Because you have a fireplace. I just, I, my mind thinking that's what you do. You know, I didn't have the warmth of it, but I had the, the vision and the crinkling sound. Because Christmas means coziness, right? Hot chocolate. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire. Jack Frost nipping at your nose. I thought about singing that and I chose wisely. And Nat King Cole playing on the background. And, and seriously, Christmas makes almost everyone nostalgic. We want coziness. We want to bring back memories of Christmas that's old or we want to make new ones or we watch the movie on Christmas. And so we're wanting that or the songs that we've sung or Whatever it is, Christmas means coziness. Do you know what the manger means? It's the exact opposite. The manger means feces instead of warm socks and slippers. The manger means rejection instead of acceptance. The manger means there's a young girl that was not in the safety of friends and family. She was not in a comfortable place to have birth. No midwives, no, no pillows, no comfort. The manger means coldness. The, the manger means separateness. The, the manger means Jesus Christ was willing to leave the safe, 
leaving the secure, leaving the constant love of the Trinity and come to earth on a mission. He, he let it go. You know, the, the manger shouldn't bring us thoughts of coziness. Do you, do you know what it means to be a Christian? Do you, do you understand the spirit of Christmas? A Christian is a flame with the spirit of Christmas who is willing to go where it's uncomfortable. That's what Christ did for us. A Christian is willing to give up the comfy life to serve those that Christ died for. Being a Christian doesn't mean that we have to be poor and destitute, but it it means we don't place our hopes in, in money or in stuff, and we're willing to give it all in order that we could serve God. And it may mean our money, it may mean our time, and it also may mean our lives. And maybe right now you're coming to church looking for some inspiration so that you can have a good life, uh, a slightly nicer life. It doesn't work that way. That's not what the manger means. That's not what Christmas means. Christmas means leaving the comfort. The manger means loss. But because of the manger, because of Christmas, we gain so much more. Because of the manger, because of Christmas, we get Christ. So where do we go when we have a problem? Who or what do we turn to? This is a question you need to ask yourself. Who is God to you? How do you picture him? There was a book that was required reading before we left to get to Sweden as missionaries. Maybe you've read it. It's called No Graven Image by Elizabeth Elliot, if you've read it, you remember in the story that everything went wrong for this missionary lady in this novel. Everything went wrong. Her whole life's work went down the drain. At the very end of the novel, when everything had gone wrong and all the things that she thought God was doing to help her to do didn't happen, she looks down and she says this. She says, now in the clear light of day, I see that if God was merely my assistant, he had betrayed me. But if on the other hand, he was God, he had freed me. I find I can no longer label this activity as useless or that activity as useful because now the work as well as the labeling is God's. See, she had a a mental image in her head of God being her assistant. That he was just coming to come and, 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 and come through and do whatever she wanted. And she was gonna pray. She was gonna do good things. And he was never gonna edit her. She was gonna edit him. He was never going to reshape her. She was going to reshape him. And if you have a view of God like that, sooner or later, he will throw you up against the rocks of reality. You'll be on a collision course with reality. And the end result is going to be disaster. And maybe that's where you're at this morning. And she says at the end of that, she says, In the clear light of day, when I start letting God be God, when I realize it wouldn't make sense if everything he did did to me made sense, that wouldn't make sense, what kind of God do I want that's in my pocket? She began to, to look at the real God as he reveals himself to be. Love beyond her ability, or even ability to imagine. 
grace about, upon her ability. Letting him be God. Submitting to God even though when she didn't understand. And in that, finding new depths of grace and understanding that you would have never found if you hadn't done the submitting to God. And she found her life began to be reshaped. No more distortions of who God was. God wasn't in her pocket. Much bigger than that. She saw Jesus as he was. Do you worry? Or are you worshiping a graven image? Something you've made. Are you bitter? Are you worshiping a graven image? If self-control, are you worshiping a graven image? Jesus says to us today, if you stop trying to make me into your likeness, I can start making you into my likeness. If you only stretch your imagination instead of confining me to your imagination, I can make you into something that's beyond any of your wildest dreams. If we allow Jesus to come and to reshape us. This passage shows us who Christ is. This passage shows us who God is. And I pray that it will sink deep within our hearts and our minds this Christmas season. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the challenge of your word this morning. I thank you for the challenge even in our singing of the songs that we have sung the worship that we've experienced together as the body of Christ. Father, I thank you for all the promises that we see here in your word. Father, I thank you for the manger. And may we not make light of that this Christmas season. May we remember the sacrifice the leaving of, of Christ, leaving the, the perfect fellowship of the Trinity to come down and to be humbled and humiliated, to be human, to live among us so that he could die for us. Father, I'm humbled by that. May we remember that this week. Father, help us as we leave this place. Help us to live for you. To think of you constantly. To be in your word. Help us to review and again read through Colossians this week. Soaking up the richness of your word. Help us to come prepared next week to worship with your people. As we remember again this glorious gospel of God coming down to rescue man, to reconcile man. May we be enthralled with that this week. Now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.